what customer was eating five years ago is completely different now. So you've got to stay sharp on that market front. Because food waste really starts at the farm and then it finishes at the end of a scraped plate. This is the Food and Beverage Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. Which do you want first, the good news or the bad news? Good news? All right. Well, The U.S. labor market is its strongest in 50 years thanks to a low unemployment rate. Employees can often take their pick of jobs and positions because there's such a healthy job market out there. But the bad news is that employers are having a hard time filling positions. Long hours, too far away, bad company morale, there's probably another position open. If you were to liken it to real estate, you could say it's a buyer's market. Today, I'm joined by Frank Pereira, managing partner of Coleman Consulting Group. Frank, so great to have you on again. Great to be here, Shelby. So let's talk about this kind of conundrum that employers face when they get that dreaded, someone walks in their office, they close the door and they're like, well, I'm going to have to put in my resignation. That's a bad feeling as a manager because you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to replace this person. How could we have kept this person? Why is retention so important to keep in mind for employees and employers? The first one is why is retention so important is if you've ever been in that position as a manager where someone says, hey, I'm leaving. And it's usually your best employees because those are the ones in a job market can find a new job. And so those are the ones that are walking out the door. Well, that terrible feeling that you have how do you think their peers feel? All of a sudden, I'm working next to Steve, and Steve is gone. Why did Steve leave? Am I missing something? So it affects not just uh, you and not just that whole, but it affects the organization as a whole. And with Steve or Sue or Jane or whoever is leaving, they take with them knowledge. They take with them part of the culture. Why are they really so ready to leave our family? Is there something wrong with our family? So it it, it has a negative effect on the whole organization. And there's some real costs associated with it. So if you get the consultants in there, they'll go in there and say, okay, let's figure out the real costs of retention. And you can do it by looking at, okay, what's the the search and hiring cost? We can calculate that. You know, if we hired 100 people, we take all the money we spent advertising and interviewing and divide that by 100, and that tells us what the average uh, search and hiring cost is. Uh, Then there's typically some classroom training, some basic, hey, welcome to the company, uh, learning about what's going on, and maybe also some time where you're learning on the job, but you're not doing anything. You're watching. And at a certain point, for some companies, that could be the first day. Other more difficult jobs, that might take three or even six months before you're actually an employee that's doing something. But once you start doing something, you're not necessarily the expert at doing it. Right? If, I'm, if I'm working on a stamping machine, I might go, hey, Shelby, can you help me out with this? I, I know you told me a minute ago, but this is only the second time I've done it. Show me this again. And so I tend to not only go slowly but I'm also sucking away important time from nearby workers or trainers. And for some companies, that ramp up may not end uh, for another three, four, five, even six months before that employee gets from a starting to work to actually, let's say, is a 90% or 95% employee. And all that is 
we can calculate that. That's, that's a mathematical number. And depending on the job, it would be anywhere from really low end, $8,000 a person at kind of a minimum wage or up to maybe twenty dollars or $25,000 per person is that math, that lost time, that lost effort. So it can get uh, very, very expensive. And it's not the cost of retention, but really the cost of non-retention or the cost of turnover. So we've got a, a real cost, a, a true dollar amount that's associated with turnover. Yeah, the cost of replacing that employee. And it's a no-win situation for companies because as you lose them, well, you're losing them maybe to competitors. Uh, they become now an avenue for current employees to follow them out the door because there's somebody advertising how good it's doing. Um, there's just a, a lot of negatives about, about uh, turnover. You mentioned the real cost of retention. I mean, that that's that's a dollar amount. So before a company has to get to that point, what's the best way to retain employees? I know that's kind of a big question because that's something that we're all trying to do. What's the key then? So I think the best way to retain employees is really schedules. A good schedule can go a long way. And now most people think about a schedule as, okay, what day am I working? Uh, And then when do I work? When do I come to work? When do I leave? Am I working the night shift? That's part of it, but it's really a whole lot more. Like a lot of people work Monday through Friday, and then they end up working the weekends on overtime. Maybe because they want to, but more often because they're being forced in because the company needs the additional production. Do you know a growing trend in the United States today, especially in the food industry, is that companies are more and more reactive to what their customer demands are. Why? Because in our drive to become more lean and tight as a company, we've removed a lot of extra work in progress. We've moved a lot of warehouses. And now there are some companies that are producing for customers in the same week that the customers make the order. So could you imagine the customer orders Monday and Tuesday, I might not find out what my workload or how much I have to work is until Thursday, which means if I'm the manager of that plant, I tell employees Thursday whether they're working the weekend or not. And you can't plan anything around your your time, your yep. family, your schedule because of your kind of, uh, I would say, oppressive schedule. It's, it's unbelievable, right? How do you deal with that? I mean, it's... Thursday, and it's e- it's even worse than I don't know if I'm working the weekend or not. I might not work Friday. So if I'm an hourly employee and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, but we had low orders this week, I had to work last weekend, but this week I'm not getting 40 hours because we're shutting down on Friday because there's no demand. And that is really happening today at businesses. And so we have to kind of change the game on schedules to fix those problems because those are the reasons they're leaving, not for what we think, which is, you know, pay or, you know, if you see some things coming out of Silicon Valley, you're offering uh, pizza at lunch or whatever. That's important, but it's not, I think, not as powerful as knowing when I'm going to go to work, knowing when I get home, getting big breaks so I can see my family. Well, I want to highlight something you said about uh, pay. Um, at some point, though, I mean, won't raising the pay help keep people there? So one of our clients said, uh, you raise pay to hire people, but you change schedules to retain them. And I I truly believe in that. Pay is a short-term motivator. I mean, uh, now that said, if you are paying below the average in your area or in the bottom 10%, you need to raise the pay. No good schedule is going to get you people if the plant next door is paying people a dollar more an hour. Right. It can't fix that. You can't can't fix that. 
So you have to get to a certain minimum. But at a certain point, once you're in 50% or 60 or 70%, pain at the 90 percentile doesn't really help. I mean, some people think, yeah, that's the answer. The problem is that pay is, again, short-term motivator. If you think about every paycheck that you've ever had in your life, it was probably spent before you got that raise. Our expenses tend to increase with our pay, and we soon forget the pay raise that we had. And there are some pay raises that are obvious when you get an increase in salary or increase in your hourly rate. In, in the end, it's all a short-term motivator. Let me ask you, though, do employees realize that? I mean, a lot of times the easiest way to point to job satisfaction or dissatisfaction is, well, I'm just not getting paid enough. Do employees realize the power that scheduling has and all of the other intangibles uh, besides pay? Absolutely. They do. Now, they'll always, when you're at the barbecue talking with people, everybody's talking about pay, right? Because it's an easy number. But we find that retention is really tied to these other things like predictability or uh, more flexibility for the employees. I mean, I'm going to not take a job where I have to go in at all sorts of crazy hours if I can get a job where I get every weekend off and I can see my kids and I can coach. And uh, th those are real life decisions. And if you think about the employee who is going to make the jump for a, an extra nickel an hour or, well, as soon as you've got him hired, you know, he's looking across the street right. at the next pay raise. Uh, so that's not really necessarily the employee you want to worry about trying to retain because it's going to be very difficult to retain that individual. What are some other factors? Uh, you started to mention maybe perks around the office, like free lunch. But what are some other factors that affect retention? And there, there's a bunch of them. And, and yeah, there's a... It seems like every new management guru has got some something like this. There's employee engagement. There's fairness. There's giving employees a voice. There's ownership in the company. Uh, and I even mentioned the snacks and the, the pizza lunches and, and all that. Uh, I think just like pay, there's a minimum level of effort that you need to do. If you're not engaging your employees at all and you're ignoring them, you're not treating them as human beings, you're not treating people fairly, well, that's a that's as bad as paying in the bottom 10%. But once you've done a certain level and just treated people normally and been real well, increasing and spending a lot of money on engagement just doesn't work. For example, if every Friday uh, we're going to have a coffee with the CEO, we're going to have employees get a chance to sit down and have a cup of coffee with the CEO. Do you know how many frontline employees really want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with the CEO? I tell you what, can you just give them that 15 or 20 minutes or half an hour? Let them go home half an hour earlier. They'll be a whole lot more happy because they'll be happier picking up their kid at 30 minutes earlier and uh, and spending time with their kid probably than sitting down having a cup of coffee with somebody they may not have a lot in common with. Right. So I, I think all these items are must-haves. I mean, you must have some level of engagement. You must have some level of ownership. The snack thing is uh, it's gotten you know it gets a lot of press because it's Silicon Valley type stuff, but it's going around the country. I think you got to look around and see what other people are providing, and you got to provide something sort of similar to that. But you know, having the best chefs in your uh, in your lunchroom and paying spending a lot of money on that, I'll tell you what, could you spend a little bit more money figuring out how people don't have to work the weekend, and you go a lot further on retention. So when you say a minimum level of engagement, I mean, uh, you know, what does that look like? You know, I think the average is how we would expect to be treated if we were in that position, right? When you when you walk in next to me and I'm an employee and you're the boss, you know, are you 
just talking to me like you would be talking to somebody going down the street. You know, when I have a real problem with my family where maybe there's a problem with my daughter and I need some time off, you may not be able to give me some time off, but at least you're empathetic to me. You'll listen to me as another human being, right? That's the, that's really the, the median, what, what, what you have to do out there, which is you need to treat people, you know, the way we want to be treated ourselves, I, I think. And, Every culture is slightly different, so it's no one answer fits all. It comes down to what's right in that culture, and every plant has its own little culture. And, you know, the employees help you decide that, too. Uh, If they're enough engaged in the company, there are people want companies to succeed. And let the employees help you figure out what's, what's fair for them. Treating others like you want to be treated, I mean, that's something that doesn't cost anything. And so I think that's a great tip for people that are looking to uh, uh, help engage their employees better and improve their, uh, their retention rates. But something that, again, that you say is that when it comes down to, to retention, it's all about the scheduling. So what are some things that work really well for employees? So... We know, uh, after serving tens or hundreds of thousands of people, that the number one thing that people want are they want more days off out of a new schedule. And the only way you get more days off and get the same paycheck is to work more hours on the days you do work. Hence the desire to work longer shifts. The 10-hour shift, for example, where I work two more hours per day, but I get an extra day off per week or 50 more days off per year. And that there seems to be a lot of interest in that. Or the extreme to that would be the 12-hour shift, where um, you uh, work an extra four hours in the days you do work, but you work half the year for a 40-hour paycheck, or less than half the year for a 40-hour paycheck. Uh, from a company standpoint, not a lot of difference having uh, three people work eight-hour shifts, uh, three eight-hour shifts with one person off, if you're covering seven by 24, or... Two people work two 12-hour shifts with two people off. The staffing's the same. The cost can be the same. But from an employee perspective, it comes down to are you willing to make that trade-off to go for a uh, more hours of work on the day to get more days off? And there's no right answer there. Now, that's just one aspect of shift length. Another one is how people uh, rotate uh, on days off. Do you work a couple days in a row with a few, a couple days off, or do you work a lot of days in a row with a lot of days off? I know companies where uh, people work three or even four weeks straight and then take big breaks, um, or other companies where people work no more than two or three days in a row, but their longest break is three days. So it can go all across the spectrum. Uh, other things that are really important for employees, I mentioned predictability before, is how do we build in predictability? So when things change from a business perspective, how are we able to minimize the effects on the employees? There are some employees that want to work more overtime. They don't want to work 40. They want to work 48 hours a week. Well, if we can keep that below a – we don't want to get let that get too hard out too crazy because I don't care how much you want to work. There's some limits on what the human body can do long term, and we've proven that. But um, – Let's say they do want to work an extra 10% or even 15% overtime. Uh, if if there's so much overtime out there and you're somebody that wants to work the overtime, the best schedule are the ones that you can get it, which means me, who's somebody who doesn't want to work overtime at all, I don't have to work overtime. And so uh, the best schedules are the ones that allow that kind of sharing to happen. 
other things that are important for people are how you interface the day, when you when you change over between shifts, uh, and then all the absenteeism items. And when I say absenteeism, it's not a negative. It's all the things that keep you absent. How does vacation work? Do we get to pick it? Do we have to pick it in weeks? Do the senior people get all the cherries? And if I'm a new hire, do I have to wait 15 years before I ever get a holiday off? How does that work? Um, you know, can I, do I have to schedule all my vacation in January for the entire year? Or can I take it in shorter bursts? Do I get paid for sick days? Um, there's this whole thing about FMLA. How does that work? That's a new, uh, new item out there from the last couple of years. Um, so all these different items are out there that are really, really important for employees. And in a whole, that helps them make their decision on whether they want to stay or not. But it sounds like there's not a one-size-fits-all solution because I think uh, you've, you've mentioned this before in previous podcasts that, you know, a eight-hour day will work great for some people. Uh, but others would rather work that longer day. It just kind of depends on, on whether they're uh, – what their, their life situation is. Yes, ma'am. And it depends on, you know, there's a thousand different things or an infinite number of items that could affect people, whether it's uh, you need more pay, you want to spend more days off, you, you know, you make use of your days off. To some people, they, they can barely get to eight hours. They're trying to get to six hour days. What are some things that um, don't work for employees then? I think the number one schedule breaker out there is lack of predictability. So if you have a, a schedule that, you know, on paper it looks good, but you're that person that doesn't find out if you're working the weekend until Thursday, you're going to start looking for another job right away because it's it, that's a pretty painful place to be. It is. It is. You don't feel like you've got ownership of your of your time and your schedule. And we have to remember that employees build their lives around their work schedules. They spend, it turns out that most of us spend over half our waking hours at work. And spending that much of your time while you're at work, you got to fit your life in around that. And, uh, and why do I say that? Well, we, you know, we're supposed to sleep seven or eight hours a day. We work maybe seven, eight hours a day. Quickly can get to half your time. So we have to fill our life in the spaces that we're not working. So it matters. Well, let me ask you, is all retention good? And I guess conversely, is all turnover bad? And the answer to that is no and no. Uh, yeah, it, a little good, little turnover is actually uh, pretty good. Companies that have zero turnover tend to lose sight of what the uh, what's going on outside, and they also tend to hide some of the weaker employees. There, there are some employees that just you know don't have what it takes. No matter how much we we try and fit them in, they'll just never work at this job. And so maybe it's time for them to look for someplace else. But we, you know, not we, but human nature and I guess certain companies tend to go out of their way for making, trying to keep those employees. Mm -hmm. And the right answer for them is they need to be told, hey, you're not doing a good job. It's time to move on. They'll learn from it. And the rest of the organization will applaud you. Right. Um, because, you know, if you're working, you've had this, you've worked with some, beside somebody that you have to carry that person. And yeah. everybody in the office, That's a morale it's, a, it's a drag on everyone. It can drive, it can drive uh, turnover to the people you'd want to retain. If there's someone that's really just not cutting it, let's move them out. It'll make everybody's life happier. Let's get some new blood. And new blood helps companies because 
you know, when you start to have this company where there's zero turnover, then all of a sudden we don't realize what's really going on out there. We think the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Oh, everybody's getting paid more. Everybody's got this going on. Everybody's got that going on. When if you just hire me, I come in and say, guys, you, we have the best job here ever. Nobody's got these kind of benefits out there. And now you're not hearing it from an outsider or a manager. You're hearing it from one of us. So I, I kind of feel like I'm sitting on the, the, the couch here with the, with the expert, but I found myself in a position where I was sitting beside somebody that was just a bad egg, just a bad employee, and, and, and her negativity really brought everybody down. And I found that I was expending more energy, uh, you know, and I'm embarrassed to say this, just nitpicking all the things that she did poorly and did wrong and all the time she left early and, and came in late. And I was spending more energy worrying about her than doing my job. And that ended up really highlighting my own feelings, I guess my own um, maybe impending burnout, because I was, it, it just put such a focus on it. So why, why does often uh, burnout, why is that often discussed? alongside with retention like what are the two with the ties so first off that what you're saying is more common than not everybody can relate to a period of time when they had to carry somebody next to them right uh they just it seems like that sort of person and that is a tremendously negative it's the bad apple in the barrel and it affects everybody and burnout's one place it does yeah. affect people when people you know burnout's an interesting uh uh, it's an interesting process uh, these days. There are uh, there's a lot of discussion on it. People getting burned out now it comes from uh, some studies that were done, and there's a there's actually a measurement called the Maslach uh, Index, and the Maslach is uh, Christine Maslach, who was a researcher with I think it was Sharon Jackson, I think is the lady's name. They did it together, and it was really designed for doctors. And doctors who see a lot of patients tend to sort of lose sight of their patients. They sort of get burnt out. They don't really care, which is pretty scary if you're a doctor. That means maybe you're right there. They're, you know, you're seeing the doctor. It's a life-changing right. thing. It could be, could be a life-affecting thing, and they're not really paying attention. Maybe they prescribe you the wrong medicine because they're just, they're just burnt out. That's really where that occupational burnout came from. And it was um, – they came up with something called the Maslach Burnout Inventory, and it measures um, three dimensions, uh, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and uh, lack of or lack of personal accomplishment, right? And it's about uh, 20 questions that they would ask, and it would, after that, they'd see how burnt out your group of physicians were. Well, it's pretty, pretty good work, and we've actually taken that burnout index, and, and they've got a couple of different indexes. Uh, they have a general one, which they say applies to everybody. It turns out it really only applies to, let's say, professionals. If you're the HR professional, maybe a supervisor, someone that's dealing with a lot of people, um, that's really where the burnout index turns out. Uh, it turns out that if you're burnt out, though, you tend to make mistakes. Uh, some of the things uh, that we, we tend to see people have are chronic fatigue, they're tired, they don't come to work, they're forgetful, they physically can break down, illnesses that would normally rub off all of a sudden or just never go away, uh, loss of appetite, anxiety, you might see them gain weight, you might see them lose weight. There's a lot of things that can affect uh, people who are getting into this, into this phase of burnout. Um, with 
hourly employees, uh, what we found is the, the real measurement of burnout tends to be hours worked. And it's, uh, it's really, really tied to number of hours worked on average, not just one week. If you think about in your, you know, you've, you've gone to school and, you know, you've had, I'm sure had hundred hour weeks when you're studying for the big test or, or, or whatever you got going on at work. And all of a sudden you, you find you're, you're working 12 hour days, you know, into Saturday, maybe even Sunday. And it's amazing what the human body can do. We can do that. And we can be just as effective on that Sunday, the last day of the week as we were on the first Monday. But if you try and do that for over a month, typically the number is five or six weeks we see a tremendous degradation in uh, in performance, whether you're a superstar or you're not a superstar. If you're averaging 60 hours a week, you're probably going to be performing in the neighborhood of 15 to 25% less productive than your peers. And this is all something that can be measured. This is measured. We've, we've seen this measured in, uh, in places. There's a lot of data out there today. Uh, a good example would be forklift drivers. We've seen it with forklift drivers where they, uh, we can look back and see how many hours they've worked per week in the previous five weeks. We compare that to their productivity, which for a forklift might be a uh, number of times they pick up and put down things. Um, and you can actually see the decrease. It's, it's really tight. And you're a superstar. You're going to be 20% less productive. You're a, a low performer. You're still going to be 20% less productive. Uh, but it's it's really really tied to the number of hours uh, you work per week. Um, there, there are some issues. You got to look at some other issues, and that culture can affect that. So that has one thing. Uh, if you're doing a, uh, you know, if you're in an offshore oil platform, or you're working at a campsite in the Andes at a mine where your work is. Uh, you know, is focused in one area and maybe you, you know, walk down, have lunch, and then you walk another hundred feet and you go to work and then you go back to your camp and you do that for two weeks. Um, you might be working more than 60 hours a week, but that's not a bad deal because you're going to get off for a full week or get off for two weeks in a row. Um, and so, uh, that's, you know, different environments can affect that number pretty well. But if you're, if you're over 50 hours a week, you're starting to see significant reduction in productivity. For an hourly employee, if you're 55 hours a week, typically pushing employees to over 56, 57 hours a week. And again, this is not just one week, but but uh, sequentially for uh, a month or two months, uh, you're going to start to see adding that 56th hour, it's probably better just hire another person than, 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 than do that. Again, depends on the exact environment, the numbers and everything else. So with hourly employees, you say then it, it's uh, the burnout is truly related to the number of hours in a, a long period of time. So then it truly does put the connection between burnout, scheduling, and retention. That burnout is preventable with the right schedule. You know, you can tie it to the large uh, company um uh, Shinitsu, SEH America, chip maker, 2,000 employees, and the work groups that were working higher levels overtime had higher levels of turnover. It was almost a straight line correlation between number of hours worked and, and number of and turnover for that group. And I've seen that whether it's Land Lakes or whether it's uh, PPG, uh, I've seen this in a lot of different companies. If people are motivated and they're not working that many hours, it's amazing what people can do and, and still laugh and enjoy it. But you start putting a lot of hours in there, people start getting burnt out. They start, and the burnout from an hourly employee, you know, you go, well, Frank, the forklift driver drives slower, got it. But if I'm on the Oreo cookie line and the Oreo cookies are going by, you know, who cares if the guy's tired or not? 
as long as the line's running and he can respond if there's a problem. Well, if I'm burnt out, I might not be losing one cookie at a time, but maybe when the line starts making some strange noise, I don't realize it's making some strange noise and I let it run till it breaks. Or when it does break, I'm not responding as quickly. Or I'm not noticing that, oh, my Oreo cookies now, there's something red in there. What's going on? These are supposed to be black and white, you know. So those kind of things can affect people with exhaustion. If you're not at the top of your mental game, then you probably won't realize that I'm at the end of that Oreo cookie line eating all those cookies and not working. That's a problem. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> what if people are tired? I mean, that's sometimes that's a little bit out of our control, but you know, how does that affect the bottom line? Well, so I, I've talked a little bit about percentages. Those translate to real dollar numbers. So if people are 20% less productive because they're working more hours, well, that means you need to hire another 20% more people in hours to fill that hole. That's, that's, I mean, that's the, the number. If you now, yeah, got the Oreo cookie line where the guy's not noticing, well, that means those damages are probably 20% more damage. So you got to make 20% more cookies someplace else out there. So these are real bottom line affecting issues. And I, I, let's not discount the fact that when people are tired, they make mistakes, they stick their hands places they shouldn't stick them. And then the most dangerous part of every job, oh, 99% of the jobs is not while they're there in front of you, but when they drive home and they're tired and now they wrap their car around a telephone pole or they, you know, they run someone over. I mean, you know, companies, we, we don't consider that's not a lost time accident because it didn't happen on our side, but you know, that's not good. And we need to, uh, you know, we need to be careful about how we push people, uh, too far. But in the end, all well-run companies are in a way a family and we have to look out for each other. We got to look out for our family members, got to look out for our team members. We can do it just from the bottom line perspective, which is that 20% less productive if you're working too many hours, but we really should be looking at it just because that's getting that person up there is going to make a big difference. You know, if you're really a bean counter and you say, well, all I care about is that 20% loss in productivity, those numbers are out there. But the bigger cost of not taking care of your employees and having them burnt out or having them on a schedule that is not fitting in with their lifestyles. And so uh, these, that's why these are so related. If we're not taking care of our people, how can we expect them to perform? How can we expect them to be part of our team? And would you treat your family members any differently than that? Would you have your children working in the middle of the night yeah. and uh, and not treat them correctly or work levels where they're they're walking around like zombies? You wouldn't. So why should you do that for your employees? I think you made a great point there that a lot of times a, a company is like a family. And that, that almost sounds like a cliche, but when you've been a part of a really great team, it truly does feel like that. And so you, you do want to watch out for each other and pick up the slack if somebody else needs help. And, and that kind of give and take among employees, that should extend to the management as well. They shouldn't be removed from that, that feeling that we're all in this together. Well, Frank, interesting stuff as always. I, I always love talking to you because you've got the best stories. I, I personally always enjoy talking to you. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks a lot, Shelby. As always, it's a pleasure. Thank you.